Bullshit is everywhere. Bullshit. Bullshit is rampant. Total fucking bullshit. B -b bullshit. This makes no fucking sense. This is bullshit. Fuck. Bullshit is bullshit. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell. Welcome back to the Bullshit Filter War on Drugs, episode 16. Uh, how are you, buddy? Doing great. How how are you? I'm hungry. How, um, how are you? Oh, you no know bacon yet? No, well, see, uh, uh, for the last couple of weeks, I've gone back to uh, IF. I'm on the IF train again. Right. If... Yeah, um, intermittent fasting, which means I don't eat until three o'clock in the afternoon. Fuck! I bet I you're fast. fun to be. I bet you're fun to be around about two thirty. Yeah, I, I as much fun as I ever am. Um, <laughs> fast for eighteen hours and then eat for six, but it's really less than that. So I eat for a couple of hours. So yeah, IF, um, which means I'm this time of the day. I'm I'm usually a little bit hungry, but okay. uh, I keep busy. Keep busy, yeah. don't have time to think about it. Focus on something else. Mm. On our last episode, we saw how Arnold Rothstein mm -hmm. invented the modern gang, drug gang. Before that, they were doing booze. He invented the, the, the booze liquor business during Prohibition. After Prohibition, he invented the drug gang. Well, a little bit before the end of Prohibition, actually. When they started on the to sign, yeah. Yeah, when they started to clamp down on drugs, he said, oh, ho, ho, ho. <laughs> I love it. Love it when they <laughs> prohibit stuff. Um, and, and I was fascinated by the fact that a couple of things. Number one, the, the inventor of the mafia was a Jew right. in America. <laughs> yeah. Um, fascinating. Um, you know, if you're, if you're a fan of, of mob stories and mob movies and TV shows, as I am, mm. there's always a Jew in there somewhere. <laughs> you, you've got Hyman Roth. You've got uh, 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 Hesh in The Sopranos. Right. There's always, it's always a bunch, of, a bunch of Italians and a Jew. And, and they always make fun of the Jew, but they always have a Jew there. Usually he's the money guy. They've got a Jew who's yeah. the money guy somewhere. Right. Um, yeah. but, and, and I didn't know, really. I mean, I, I knew about Myelansky and I knew that he was important, but I didn't realize that Rothstein invented the whole fucking thing. So there you go. Yeah. Um, when, when, when people go, the Jews, it's all the Jews. Well... I don't. I don't think so. But in this case, he started it anyway. Um, I, I can picture you in a pub in Europe, and, and someone's being anti-Semitic. Going, no, no, don't don't do that whole thing about hating Jews because they killed Christ. Let me give you a real reason. <laughs> not, not to hate Jews. This particular guy. You should respect. And, and again, yeah. Well, and I'm 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 just saying. You know, as I said last time, uh, this guy was just selling what people wanted. I mean, exactly. the, the whole war on drugs was illegitimate in the first place. So, um, you know, I mean, okay, so he, he, he had a lot of people killed, it sounds like, in the process. That's not great. But no. uh, the selling of the drugs, I don't really have a problem yeah. with that. Anyway, 
But on November 4th, 1928, the brain's luck ran out. Well, as you said last time, you know, he helped create the culture of terror. Well, that's a two-sided coin, and he is about to find out. So you, you can you can bully everybody around and you can muscle them around, but other people have guns and pride and desires as well. And and he knew that. He, he knew he was living on the edge, and now, you know, everybody runs out of time eventually. So on November 4th, 1928, uh, he was at a business meeting on uh, 7th Avenue, uh, Manhattan, Manhattan's Park Central Hotel, as it was at the time. I'm not sure if that's still around, Park, Park Central Hotel. Not sure. Hmm. Someone check Possibly. I'm going to look it up. I'm going to okay. look it up. Sounds like it could be a thing. Are you uh, looking yeah, it up? Still a, okay. I looked it up. Still around, Park Central Fast Hotel. Fingers. Fast Fingers Thank Cam. That's, that's what Grizzly calls me. <laughs> It's right across the street from Carnegie Hall. and So I was there. Like in January, right. I remember Tony and Alex Kynaston and I walked past Carnegie Hall. We were staying right next to Carnegie Hall, uh, just up the street from it. So there you go. We might have been staying at the Park Center. I don't know. And, Who knows? And, and just to let everybody know, as far as I could tell, and, and you know you can't really trust these numbers, but supposedly at this moment in his life, Rothstein is worth about $10 million dollars Money, you know, that's obviously a 1927 or whatever money. So, so yeah, you know, this guy had roughly what we had considered today $130 million. So he, he was, on paper, doing pretty, pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah. Um, and anyway, he's at this business meeting and he gets shot in the groin or the stomach, depending oh, on which source you believe. That's not good. One snitch told the cops later that the shooter had aimed the gun at Arnold's balls as a threat, but actually, but accidentally flinched, pulled the trigger and shot him in the gut. Um, anyway, doesn't kill him. Uh, they don't help him. Rothstein staggers to the sur- service entrance of the hotel and asks them to get him a taxi. Sure. Not an amb- not an ambulance. <laughs> just call me call I, me a limo. I know a guy. Um, yeah, call me an Uber. Um, <laughs> but the cops came instead. Oh, the irony! Yeah, and when they asked him who did it, he said, "If I live, I'll tend to it. If I die, the gang will." Oh, he's probably right. He also told them, "You stick to your trade. I'll stick to mine." <laughs> And when they kept asking him, he said, my mother did it. <laughs> my mother shot me on the, tried to shoot me in the balls. Sure. That's, that's, yeah. Okay. Well, if his Jewish mother was mothers. anything like Livia Soprano, yeah, then, it could happen. Well. <laughs> he was 47 years old, which is how old I am right now. Um, hope no one tries to shoot me in the balls when we're in Europe. Um, and if they do, I hope I'm not sitting next to you. I hope that's not I'm, being selfish. But I'm glad that we don't have easy access to guns in this country because uh, Amen, brother. Uh, several ex-wives and Chrissy may have even tried to do that at various times. Um, he died two days later, oh, Big Arnold Rothstein. Painful. Did he eventually make his way to a hospital? Uh, yeah, I think he, I think the cops took him to a hospital. Yeah, that was nice of him. Okay. 
Now, the official story is that the shooting had something to do with a high-stakes poker game he had been involved with a couple of months earlier that had lasted for three days. Dang. Apparently, he hit a losing streak in this game, ended up owing about $320,000, which is about $4.5 million in today's money. At what point, you know, for me, like $75, I'm like, I'm out. I'm out. Obviously, I'm not going to do well tonight. I'm out. This guy ran up a yeah. debt of $320,000. Well, I read that uh, the, towards the end of the three days, everyone was getting a little bit bored. Um, so they just started rolling dice. And throwing oh. everything on it, and then then he went double for nothing, double or nothing. And um, anyway, there were three men that supposedly were at the poker game with him: uh, Red Martin Bow, Willie McCabe, and Nigger Nate Raymond. <laughs> now, Nigger Nate was a white man. Sure. Uh, sure. How do you think a white man gets a nickname like Nigger Nate in nineteen twenty-eight, Ray? I am not even going to venture a legitimate guess. I just think maybe he was very tan. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah, he had a dark complexion, apparently. Uh, Dark complexion, and they called him Nigger Nate. (laughs) So there you go. Those were the days. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Now, he refused to pay up. Uh, Big Arnold, he he <laughs> claimed the game was fixed. Now, when you're rolling dice, uh, <laughs> unless the dice were weighted, That's I don't know. The gods. Yeah. Other sources say that he said he would pay, but it would take him some time to get the cash together. In fact, he said he'd have to wait until after the New York elections. He had money on Franklin Delano Roosevelt, <laughs> as you like to call him, becoming mm-hmm. governor. Um, one source I read said he refused because he said the game was fixed, then said, I'm not going to give them a cent. If they're looking for me, I can be found any night at Lindy's, which is his favorite <laughs> joint where he'd do business. So, so what now, did I we learn? Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I, I don't actually think it had anything to do with the poker game, but we'll get to that. Right. Um, now, the, the, the thing about Rothstein was apparently he didn't have any bodyguards and he didn't carry a gun. He didn't need it. He's Arnold motherfucking Rothstein. Everybody is afraid yeah. of him or he owns them. Yeah. Yeah. He, 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 you know, his power was that he was basically untouchable. Right. Or so he thought. Right. So, well, uh, well, so you care. want to ask something? What did we learn or something? Well, j- just that, you know, I know it's three days and you're punchy, but rule number one, you know, don't. Play poker with money you can't afford to lose. Um, yeah, and rule number two, and this is the big one. When you're sitting down a, uh, around a table with cutthroats and gangsters and murderers, you don't say, fuck you, I'm not going to pay. That was rigged. You're calling them cheaters, liars within the same sentence, and you're not going to pay. So not a good career move. That's all I'm saying. J- just don't go to yeah, Vegas. Yeah, but he's, you know, he's, he's Arnold, Arnold Rothstein. Yeah. You're yeah. not Arnold Rothstein. No. Um, if you're not Arnold Rothstein, you shouldn't do that. But if you're Arnold Rothstein, uh, he didn't think anything, anything was going to happen. Right. Now, the chief of police in New York immediately said that he knew who the shooter was and they could pick him up at any time. Really? But no one was arrested. Uh, um, for a while. 
anyway, so um, one of the one of the theories is, and I went back and I read a lot of the uh, newspaper reports from 1928, <clears throat> mm-hmm. and. Uh, one of the theories that was in the papers at the time was that the police and the politicians <coughs> were worried that if the actual shooter was arrested, he might talk Ooh. about the connections between the police and the politicians and no, Rothstein. No, no, no. Yeah. Like a canary. And then pretty soon there's a whole bunch of people in jail next to the shooter who normally wear nice suits. No, you don't, you don't want that. Now, there was a two-bit gambler called George McManus who was eventually arrested for the murder. He handed himself in. Mm -hmm. Uh, There were stories that he was at this business meeting. Um, But he was later acquitted due to lack of evidence. So Mm -hmm. still to this day, nobody knows who shot Arnold Rothstein. Wow. And considering who he was and the muscle that he had and the people that he had on his payroll who had guns at the time, that was probably best. And for the cops and politicians, like you said, don't you think that that was best? That was the best outcome for everybody. That he got shot, or no. that no one knew who <laughs> shot him. A little bit of both. Uh, no, 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 that no one was proven to have shot him. So yeah, I mean that just would have that could have stirred up a, a bloodbath. So. But you're right. It's amazing that no one to this day knows, kind of like the Kennedy thing, who shot this incredible, very important, powerful, rich figure in the underworld. But what he started obviously survived him. So with him gone, his former associates split up his empire. Uh, names that are more famous, funnily enough, than Rothstein's name, I think. Maya Lansky, Bugsy Siegel... Legs Diamond, Frank Erickson, these guys basically carved up what he had built and uh, ran with it. And of course, as we know, it exploded. Um, but th- this is sort of the beginning, I guess, the, the shooting of Arnold Rothstein of the violence that we are all familiar with in the uh, drug business. Drug dealers have been engaged in constant violence ever since to control the distribution of drugs, uh, not just in the United States, obviously, but around the world, because there's so much money in it. And as we explained in the last episode, Rothstein knew that uh, because there was so much money in it, you had to uh, threaten people with extreme violence to stop them from just taking your shit because you couldn't go to the couldn't go to the police. So that was the only way of protecting your protecting your stash. Yeah. Now, don't you find it interesting that here comes Arnold Rothstein and he sees the potential for drugs and for racketeering, for for all this stuff. And because he's smart enough, he's like, we have to treat this like a business. I want things organized, even down to the street level. I want everything organized. I want everything to be professional. This is a business. It might be illegal, but it is strictly a business. And he treated it that way. So I find it fascinating when he is killed most brutally, there could have been a major war for everybody fighting over his turf. And there might've been some killings. I don't really know, but you get the sense that some of these guys sat down who survived him and said, okay, look, Again, this is a business. You take this, I'll take this, you take that, you'll take that, and we'll work some stuff out if there's disagreement. But it, like you said, it, it kept going. It was a business at this point that was making a shit ton of money. They treated it like that. And 
no matter when you, you no matter who you are, when you die, the world has to go on. And that's what these guys did. And, and from what I could tell, it was a semi-smooth transition because no one wants to interrupt the prophets coming in. Yeah. One thing that happened, though, is um, the guys that came after uh, Arnold. I mean, Arnold was known, when you go back and you read all of the New York newspapers from the time, as the gentleman gambler. Right. He was very, very dapper, very charming. Everyone liked him, um, except the people that he tortured and killed. Uh, but no one really knew. The general public didn't know that he was behind the oh. prohibition liquor and 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 the the drug business. They had no idea. Wow. Um, he wasn't famous like Al Capone. Was yeah. he was uh, he was just known as this gambler, big gambler, but no one no one knew the full extent. The general public, anyway, didn't know the full extent of his power. Wow. But the guys that came after him uh, were more violent than he was, and I guess that's what we've seen ever since. Every time the new Arnold Rothstein, the new kingpin, is killed, a harder and more vicious version of him right. emerges to fill the space. Uh, and that's what prohibition allows. It's built this global criminal industry that allows for ever increasing levels of violence. And you know, people that have watched The Wire, mm-hmm. f- familiar with this. I mean, The Wire starts off with the, the main drug dealers that we see are um, uh, Stringer Bell uh, and 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 um, what's his fucking the guy oh, rang Stringer Bell's. Um, uh, oh, uh, uh, looking right at him. Um, oh. uh, uh, wasn't Avon Barksdale? There, there we go. Yeah, there no, D'Angelo's go. uncle, <laughs> Avon. I mean, they're they're brutal, but they're also somewhat restrained, and what right. in, in in how they they conduct things. I mean, they will they will kill you if you try and fuck with their business, but they're not just blood right. bloodthirsty there has to be a killers. Exactly. And then and then by the end of the series, you end up with Marlo Stanfield running things. I'm gonna say what? Nothing. I'm gonna try calling y'all by name, but shit, it wasn't. What you say about me? Nothing, man. Just talking shit. Use my name. In the street. Talk, motherfucker. He just, you know, say that you need to step two in that. I don't know. He just running his mouth. Something. You call me a punk? It was bullshit, man. You ain't need that on your mind. What the fuck you know about what I need on my mind, motherfucker? My name was on the street. And we bounce from this shit here, I'm gonna go down in them corners, let them people know. Word did not get back to me. Let them know Marlo stepped to any motherfucker, Omar, Barksdale, whoever. My name is my name. My name is my name. That that's true. You can't argue with that. No, yeah, but I you're don't right. Like if it I, when you use my name, <laughs> I use your name sometimes when I'm by myself. But anyway, uh, but you're absolutely right. I mean, this is a this is a million or whatever dollar, hundred hundreds of millions of dollars business, and there are no rules. If I can come along and I'm cruel enough and mean enough and smart enough to take you out, then I can take you out. It's not like you're going to go to the cops or whatever. So again, it's just, it's Darwinianism on a, on a grand scale. And in each time that there's a new person, that means they're probably even more ruthless than the last, just like you said. And of course, that's when you're going to get to stuff that you see today. 
Harry Anslinger wrote in 1961, one group rose to power over the corpses of another, which I thought was a nice little line. Johan Hari in his book uh, said, Darwinian evolution armed with a machine gun and a baggie of crack. I like that one too. (laughs) And I'd add to that insane amounts of cash as well. Darwinian evolution armed with a machine gun, a baggie of crack, and insane amounts of cash. (laughs) Now, when people think of drug violence, uh, you know, I think we often think about drug addicts Mm -hmm. committing acts of violence because they're high or because they want to rob someone to get money to buy drugs. But Professor Paul Goldstein from the University of Illinois conducted a detailed study about the drug violence, drug-related violence. He looked at every killing identified as drug-related in New York City in 1986. It turned out that only 7.5% of the killings took place after a person took drugs or their behaviour seemed to change as a result of taking drugs. Um, 2% were the result of addicts trying to steal to feed their habit and are going Mm. wrong. More than three quarters, the vast majority of drug violence were uh, gangs killing each other. Right. That's what the the majority of drug-related violence is. So another myth has been debunked. Not that Harry Anslinger would have believed that for a second. He would have ignored the, the statistics. But yeah, so again, it's just another fake piece of a giant fake puzzle. Yeah, the vast majority of drug-related violence has got nothing to do with drugs per se, any more than Al Capone's killings were caused by alcohol. They're caused by prohibition and and, and these guys going out to take each other's turf. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't just the drug gangs that lived on after Rothstein. It was the other side of the equation as well, The, the ones made up of the police and politicians, the other drug gangs. Now, we we need to pay attention to the dates here. So Rothstein died at the end of 1928. Mm -hmm. Harry Anslinger, as we know, launched the Bureau of Narcotics um, 18 months later, in the middle of 1930. And the second event was driven by the first. One of the things that happened when Rothstein died uh, is the the cops went in and and had a look at all of his uh, paperwork, and God. it it had a number of consequences. So apparently he had a bookkeeper who kept very accurate records. Um, this is bef- before the days when they had fake books, a fake set of <laughs> books. Um, they had the real books, and. One of the things they found out was that Rothstein had a real estate company that he used as a front for a lot of his illegal enterprises. Keeping in mind, again, that not many people knew that he was involved in prohibition and the drug business. Everyone thought he was just a gambler. Turned out, when they got into his uh, books, he owned pretty much three quarters of Queens. um, And... He also had been financing an international drug cartel based in Holland. Wow. Crime does pay. Now, this cartel had been supplying millions of dollars of drugs to American gangsters since 1925. 
not just Rothstein, but all of the gangs. He was running the supply side. So he was he was getting the drugs into the country, and then not just his guys, but other guys like Al Capone's outfit were selling the drugs, but they were getting them from Rothstein, who was bringing them into the country. And like we said on the last show, every $1,000 he got, he was able to turn into $6,000, and you're talking about millions of dollars worth of drugs. Yeah. Wow. Now... Um, that wasn't the biggest impact of his death, though. Probably the biggest impact was the political fallout. Newspapers in New York from the very get-go were printing rumours that Rothstein had financial ties with a lot of New York's most prominent public figures, including the mayor, Jimmy Walker, who was a bit of a character. I never heard of this guy before, but I read up on him, and he was uh, he was a character. Um <laughs> He was, a, he was a flamboyant mayor they had in uh, the Roaring Twenties. Um, and when, when all this broke, uh, out, broke out and uh, he started to uh, look like he was going to uh, uh, get taken down, he, he just left and went to Europe with his mistress, who was a showgirl. Um, <laughs> I think he divorced his wife, took up with a showgirl and uh, went to Europe for like five years and waited for things to calm down before he came back. Oh, my God. Um, real character. But anyway, yeah, so it looked like the rumours were that Rothstein had ties with the mayor, bunch of politicians, as well as several judges. Um, the the rumours in the newspapers were that a lot of these guys, politicians, judges, cops, society figures, might have their names on a secret list that Rothstein kept from his floating casinos. So these guys had been participating in his floating casinos and also maybe have borrowed money from him, obviously in return for favours and all of that kind of stuff. <clears throat> so you know, for the first time in American history, we have this, uh, these reports of connections between drug gangs, the mm-hmm. cash that the drug business produced and how it was used to corrupt politicians and policemen and the justice system. If, if I can add on to that, so obviously with Rothstein's death, um, Tammany Hall, which was very weak by this point, it was, uh, it was hurt even more because the entire system that was still around of Tammany Hall relied upon Rothstein to control the street gangs. And now that he's not there bringing in the money on a regular basis, you know who to contact again. So legitimate politicians are being affected and those that are on the take are also being affected. So this is a very big deal that this guy was gunned down in 1928. Yeah, and, and for people like me who don't really know much about Tammany Hall and what it was, it was the Democratic Party's infamous headquarters in New York. Uh, it had been in power for a long time, very corrupt. Um, and uh, the, the, the US attorney at the time, who was a Republican, Charles Tuttle, used the connections with Rothstein uh, to to get rid of Tammany Hall, basically, which is what allowed Fiorello LaGuardia mm. to rise to power and become the mayor of New York City in 1933. We talked about him in earlier episodes. It wasn't just Tammany Hall that got sacked. Uh, the entire New York homicide squad was fired <laughs> by the police commissioner, um, partly because of their inability to solve Arnold Rothstein's murder, 
Yeah. Um, partly because he said there had been 228 homicide reports in the city that year and they'd solved only two of them. <laughs> you and I could do that. Uh, the suggestion was that they were corrupt and that, you know, they were turning a blind eye to a lot of these homicides because they were, in, you know, they, they, they had something to do with the drug gangs or prohibition still going on at the time, etc. So uh, they weren't really trying to solve the crimes. They were just uh, taking a paycheck from uh, the, the, the gangs. Nice. So right at the very beginning of the drug war in the United States, we see drug dealers using their wealth to buy influence and corrupt police, politicians, and judges. And on a side note, I think we're the only ones who don't have our own side girl, a chorus girl. Even Rothstein, um, when he was shot, had a 27-year-old chorus girl as his new, as his new girlfriend. So, um, again, we must be doing you, something got, wrong. You've got your sister-in-law. <laughs> no! You're not helping! No? Okay. Hey, Rachel. <laughs> Oh, that's going on the editing floor. Okay, no, just again. <laughs> no, that's where she's been too, is what I heard. <laughs> that's how she got the job. I can't believe I just said that. Moving on, moving on. I'm doing the hand gestures for moving on. Yeah, your wife, Heather, comes home. So what did she get up to today, Ray? Oh, busy day on the editing floor. Busy day. Yeah. Oh, I was hitting it hard. Hitting it hard on the editing floor today. Nose to the grindstone. Mm. Why, 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 why? It looks like you've been cleaning up here. Lots of rags. <laughs> lots of bleach. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Cleaning looks like, a, like you know, Looks like a cleanliness is next, almost. Yeah. Cleanliness is next to godliness. That's what I always say. <laughs> that would make her suspicious. Well, and you're not godly, but you want to be clean, right? You want to be the next best thing that's to true. godly. is cleanly. True. Yeah. Mm. And then, of course, um, just following the timeline, on the 14th of January 1930 is when the son of the Narcotics Division Chief at the time, Colonel Levi Nutt, or <coughs> Lefty Nutt, he of The Code, a.k.a. the Edict of Nutt, right. the thing that scared off doctors from prescribing drugs to their patients. Mm -hmm. The son appeared before the grand jury, mentioned this briefly in an earlier episode, um, the son of Nutt, um, who I think his name was Righty Nutt, had been employed, employed as a tax attorney um, by Arnold Rothstein. Oh, and shit. he was accused of, of filing false income tax statements for Arnold. There was an inquiry. Uh, all of that led to Lefty Nutt, the dad, getting fired from running the narcotics division for padding his arrest record. He didn't do oh, any God. real arrests either. Like the New York Homicide Division, Lefty Nut was uh, making up his arrest numbers. And all of that is what led to them creating the new Bureau of Narcotics and giving the job to Harry. Uh, well, even a racketeer like Arnold Rothstein's needs good paperwork. I mean, he was just providing a service. So, again, is that wrong? Well, particularly when... You're running floating gambling operations where people are winning and losing money. You have to keep record of all of yeah. that. Who owes me what? Mm. Um, not to mention he's running you know, this massive multi-million dollar drug operation. So back to Harry. Now, um, some of his disciples in Congress and the White House made increasingly harsh 
punishments for the sale and use of drugs. I think we've we've sort of talked up to the 30s and 40s in our earlier episodes. The next one I wanted to talk about was the Boggs Act of 1952. This is when it really starts to get hardcore. Um, the Boggs Act was the first time that we start to see mandatory sentences for drug convictions. Mm-hmm. Uh, for a first offence for marijuana possession, you would get a minimum of two to ten years and a fine of up to $20,000, 1952 Damn. money. Hmm. Now, this was sponsored by a guy called Hale Boggs, who was a Louisiana Democrat. You ever heard of uh, Hale Boggs? No. No. I have now. Well, he... He's, he's uh, somewhat best known for the fact that he was later on a member of the Warren Commission that looked into the Kennedy assassination. And mm-hmm. he was one of the uh, members of the commission that dissented from the majority opinion, uh, which was that there was a lone shooter, Lee Harvey, and the, the single bullet theory. Right. He was like, nah, I don't think so. Uh, doesn't doesn't stack up. I've seen all of the evidence presented to the Warren Commission. I don't think it was a single shooter. Right. Uh, guess what happened to him? He got shot? No, I don't know. Close. Uh, 1972, a couple of years after the Warren Commission's report uh, came out, uh, he was still the House Majority Leader. For the Democrats, um, it was in a twin-engine airplane which uh, disappeared over a remote section of Alaska and uh, was never seen again. Wow. Airplane presumably crashed, but the wreckage has never been found. Right. Oh, my God. Now, ironically, for a man who introduced harsher punishment for drug convictions... Here we go. Hale bot. Hal Boggs's daughter is NPR journalist Cokie Roberts. Get the fuck out uh, of here. I will not. Um, <laughs> he, he, he's best known for introducing harsh punishments for drugs and then named his daughter Cocaine. <laughs> hey, she's a Cokie. Yeah, Cokie. Actually, her, na- her birth name is Mary, Mary Martha Corinne Morrison. Claiborne Roberts got the nickname Cokie. <laughs> Apparently her brother, Tommy, couldn't pronounce her name Corinne and he called her Cokie. I don't think that's the real reason, but uh, yeah, there you I go. W- Cokie Roberts. I wonder what he was thinking about the time. I wonder what he was thinking of uh, the time that he named her. A little nose candy. Mary Martha Corinne Morrison Claiborne. Wow. Hmm. Uh, so there you go. So the Boggs Act introduced mandatory, was signed into, uh, uh, mandatory punishment, was signed into law by Harry Truman, mm-hmm. who we're talking about a lot on our Cold War show at the moment. Now, the Boggs Act made no distinction between consumers and traffickers. Right. And it was the first time that cannabis and narcotics were lumped into the same category. Second offences had a minimum of five to ten years and third offences had minimums of 10 to 20 years. For having, for holding marijuana? Holding, holding marijuana. Yeah. There was a representative from New York who actually called for a 100-year mandatory minimum (laughs) 
for anyone selling cannabis didn't didn't actually get off the ground, but that's what he thought would be a good idea. He was just trying to one up everyone else. <laughs> I know, let's make it a thousand year Reich. No, I mean a thousand year <laughs> sentence if you're selling cannabis. Keep their their skeleton in the prison. That's how serious I am about this. No, so let let's just just take a second and remember that. So this is 19, what did I say, 52, Mm -hmm. he introduces this. So 30 years ago, previous to that, most of these drugs were legal. They were in Coca-Cola, you could buy them, you could sell them, you could use them. They were being prescribed by doctors, by pharmacists, by dentists. It was all good. Now, mandatory sentences of 2 to 20 years for possession of cannabis. That's parallel with the speed of which, which Christianity went from a outlaw uh, religion to the law, the religion. Yeah, it is. Got a lot in common. You're right. Yeah. Now, the government, obviously, U.S. government came to really like mandatory minimums, um, and so much so that they expanded them even further in 1956 with the Narcotic Control Act, signed into law by Ike Eisenhower, mm-hmm. and it made the punishments even harsher. It introduced the death penalty for certain drug offences. It increased the minimum for possession to five years for a first offence and 10 years for subsequent offences. That's insane. That is, do they yeah. literally think that they could just criminalise it to the point where nobody would ever touch it again? I guess that's their thinking or hope. Yeah, 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 uh, to, to scare people off from using it. And, of course, as we know, didn't work in Prohibition in the 20s, didn't yeah. work with drugs either, just doesn't work. But, but that's what gets me. Nobody's thinking, nobody's looking at the recent history of Prohibition. No one's doing any serious studies or analyzing. Or these are addicts, they need help, they don't just need to be punished. I mean, it's just all hammer, hammer, hammer and just know anything else. And based on no evidence, exactly. as we've seen. Exactly. And oh, my God. It was, uh, you know, to me, it's, it's kind of, it, it, I think it's kind of like the anti-communist uh, rhetoric that we saw happen in the US after World War II. It's just this increasing pressure that politicians feel felt that they had to look tough and sound tough. Mm. They, they couldn't be reasonable. They couldn't be sensible. They had to look and sound tough, tough on communism, tough on drugs, tough on crime. And as we see, when, by the time we get to Nixon, that becomes you know, a major part of the policy. Yeah, if you ease up just a little bit, someone will run on a tougher platform than you. And like you said, you can't have that. So you have to do it balls to the wall so no one could run to the right of you and keep your keep your um, elected position. Yeah, and it's just been and, – and, and that game now has been going on for 70 years. Um, I'm tougher than you are. No, you're not. I'm going to be tougher than – oh, what? Let me, well, you know. A thousand years, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now, we mentioned in an earlier episode that Harry survived running the Federal Bureau of Narcotics until the Kennedy administration. 30-plus years he was in the job. Wow. Um, he, he didn't get 
uh, fired. He basically reached the the sort of retirement age. Um, Kennedy said nice things about him, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and he I think he was like in his he was seventy or seventy two or something like that when he left. We've mentioned many of his enemies, but there's one that we haven't mentioned. In mm-hmm. fact, uh, I said I thought if they ever met, they would have been friends. Turns out I was wrong. One of his enemies was good old J. Edgar Hoover. Really? Do tell. Yeah. Well, they were rivals, as it turns out. Mm-hmm. Um, even though they had both been running their respective agencies, Hoover at the FBI, uh, Asseling, Asslinger at the FBN. Um, Asslinger, did I say? Asslinger? Asslinger. <laughs> And Slinger. And Slinger. So I was thinking of, You'll get there. I was thinking of J. Edgar Hoover and arse licking, and, and <laughs> you know, I just connect those two. And Slinger. <laughs> Apparently they were enemies and they'd been trading insults for 30 years. Um, and uh, Hoover was the more powerful of the two. He used to make fun of Harry and Harry hated Hoover and, and this was go back and forth. And When Truman created the CIA after World War II, Anslinger cooperated them while Hoover fought against them. Hoover saw them as encroaching on his turf. Right. Um, Anslinger got on board with them. Hoover, of course, famously denied the existence of the mafia while Anslinger believed in them from very early on during his time with the railroad. Mm-hmm. Um, there were rumours going around at the time that the mob had photos of J. Edgar Hoover engaged sucking somebody's dick. <laughs> And use that to keep his silence. Oh. And you still hear these stories today, but I don't think there's any evidence that um, mm-hmm. Hoover was actively gay. More likely that he was very deep in the closet. Right. Um, he had no sex life that um, there's any record of. Didn't date, except for when he was really young. He was seen with a woman on his arm sometimes, but everyone figured she was a beard. Um, later mm-hmm. on, for the last three or four decades of his life, he had he kept male company, lived with the guy. They went out, they holidayed together. Aww. But <laughs> there, there's no evidence. I don't know if he lived with him. I think he lived by himself, but he had him over a lot and they went on vacations together. No real evidence outside of that, though, that he was actively homosexual. Um, so either he did a very good job of keeping it a secret, which is possible because he had dirt on everybody, mm-hmm. um, or he was just really, really deep in the closet because he prosecuted homosexuals. It was right. a big part of what the FBI was doing during this period was uh, prosecuting or, or uh, using information on homosexuals and and, and uh, blackmailing him with that to get them to do things. That's incredible. Yeah, he was, um, yeah, just, I, I just can't imagine these two not being intense rivalries. You imagine that, that the, the billywhack of what they controlled might cross over each other, and you can easily see it leading to some intense interdepartmental rivalry. Yeah, apparently that's that's exactly how it played out. Yeah. Now, Hoover, uh, his excuse for not going after the mafia was that he said crimes like racketeering and, extor- and extortion were matters for state and local enforcement. He was worried about the really big threats to national security like commies and the darkies. Oh, that's God. what he was after. 
Commies and the darkies. They right. were his big his big issues. Um, and he saw they were connect. He thought they were connected. He thought the darkies and and the hippies, who we'll get to a bit later, were being financed and funded by the commies as a means of creating a fifth column and, and overthrowing American values and institutions and that sort of stuff. Were they? Uh, uh, well, n- yes. There, there was some funding, I think, that went on behind the scenes in different areas. Of course, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, but probably not but, on the scale uh, that he thought. No, it's not like the civil rights movement or the hippie movement were engineered by the Soviets. <laughs> Right. Um, they, you know, they may have got some some money through some fronts here or there to help them on their way. It's a bit like the claims today that 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 Putin is uh, overthrowing American democracy and getting Trump elected. Yeah, he may have thrown a few bucks here or there to just help it along, but come on, the, the yeah. divisions in American culture go way way deeper than anything Putin can take credit for. Yeah, I I think the. I'm sorry, just the way I think about Putin, that comment you just made, I think he's at times riding the wave, but he is not the wave. And like you said, we've been, we've been, America's been politicizing everything about our culture since the end of World War II, and we don't need anybody's help to, uh, to tear our own selves apart. Yeah, I think it goes back a little bit further than World War II, man. Right. Um, in 1959, uh, there were more than 400 FBI agents in New York covering communists. Only four were covering the mafia. So that gives you an idea of the relative importance that J. Edgar put on those two things. And he was also apparently worried that FBI agents, like the FBN agents, mm-hmm. would get corrupted by mafia money if they started to get involved in that world. He'd seen wow. it happen. We've talked about it happened with Lefty Nutt and his guys and then also with uh, Harry and his guys. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, not Harry per se. We, there's no evidence that Harry was on the take, but a lot of his right. agents were on the take. Um, and, and that was well known. And Hoover didn't want to risk the FBI's reputation by having them get mixed up in chasing the mob and drugs and all that kind of stuff. Could have really used his help. Who could have? Uh, the United States in general. If, if, if drugs truly were the demon that everybody, that all these people thought they were, it would have been nice to have had the FBI in on it. But um, again, just, just, uh, just the misallocation of resources uh, is staggering um, for 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 this you know this guy who has this very powerful powerful position. Right. Well, I don't yeah. think drugs were a problem. No, I think no. The I'm war just saying drugs it, was the problem. Exactly. I'm saying. At, yeah. No, just saying that if drugs had been truly the demon that everybody that they, these people thought it was, uh, and he was still you know not doing anything about it, focused on communism. That's just a, and uh, it's just a sad mark on his professionalism. Harry left office, as I said, in 1962, and this is just as the youth of America is starting to take their drugs seriously. (laughs) So after 30 years trying to drive drugs out of America, he retires and everyone goes, thank fuck he's gone. Let's get our drugs on, baby. Light up. Light him up. And, um... uh, I think um, we might leave it there. We'll, we'll start to get into the 60s and drug culture 
yeah. in our next episode. Well, tell you what, before we leave, j- just because I found this, I accidentally uh, went down a different rabbit hole, um, and I kept going because it was so fascinating. Um, and I, I had no idea about this. Uh, tell me if you've heard, ever heard of this. So by the time the um, Great Depression comes along, Herbert Hoover is elected president. And he, you know, he doesn't, even though he's a pretty impressive guy, self-made millionaire in mining and stuff like that, he thinks that the the Great Depression, and he doesn't really know how bad it's going to be, obviously, he thinks it's a lack of confidence in the financial system. So he's going to try to bolster the rail, the railroads and the banks and stuff like that. And he doesn't want too many Americans going on the dull because it might weaken the country. But the real problem, it turns out, to him and many like him, are the Mexicans. Not only are they bringing their drugs in and and messing up a a lot of American youth and that kind of stuff, uh, but they're the ones who are taking American jobs. And so what he wants to do is to deport as many Mexicans as he can. Well, Mexican Latinos, but it's called the Great Reparation Program. Somewhere between 500,000 and 2 million people were repatriated to Mexico uh, between 1929 and 1936. And obviously it went on after he went out of office. But almost 2 million people were forced out of the country, and roughly 60% of them were people who were born in this country, but they looked the part, so they were they were they were kicked out. So it was all wrapped up in racism. It was wrapped up in blaming them for uh, marijuana, and um, so many people's lives were ruined. Some people were literally forced on, beaten, and forced onto a train or to a bus and sent south. Mexico, to the best of their ability, built entire new villages and cities trying to house these people. But obviously, they've only got so much money. But again, I had no idea that we. You know, you've got FDR putting, I don't know how many tens of thousands of Japanese into internment camps, but Herbert Hoover uh, shipped out almost 2 million Mexicans due to racism, the anger at them about the drugs, and thinking that they were taking American jobs when we needed them the most during the Depression. So I just went down that rabbit hole uh, somehow, and I just thought that was just another example of America not at its best, panicking because of economic means, and taking the wrong path on a massive scale, just like we are, are still to this day doing with drugs. Mm. Imagine if Trump did that. Well, see, that's just it. The people were telling him the cost of shipping them south, of forcing them south, because obviously you're going to have to force them, that's not going to pay enough to make up for all those jobs that they're not going to be able to take because now there are no jobs. It's the Great Depression. Everybody's being, you know, every everybody's uh, cutting back on their employers. So again, but it didn't matter. It fit. It made a certain um, segment of America happy. So he went along with it. And and some Mexicans were actually leaving on their own because they had no jobs because of the Depression. But the the first wave went out voluntarily, and the second and continuous massive wave waves were forced out. Because, again, of racism, of drugs, and they're taking American jobs. It's just history repeating itself. And so when Trump says he wants to deport 12 million or whatever the number was of, of, of Latinos, I mean, you're insane. You'll ruin the economy, and it will cost so much money. We'll be in the hole even further. But, again, no one's paying attention to history here. No one's learning, and, and everybody's just repeating the mistakes. Mm. And that's what we're doing today with drugs. Yeah. Repeating old mistakes. All right, that's the show. See you next time, folks.